0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. So glad that you could join us for our online streaming. Um, We hope that you're doing well, that you're self-isolating and that you're managing to not go stir crazy, uh, not murder one another, uh, behave like Christians. Um, we're thrilled that you could join us for this uh, for this message. I um, just want to tell you a story uh, at, before I start. Actually, I was almost ready to come down to to film, and uh, Karen was talking to our granddaughter Neve and uh, she said, "Please make sure you listen to Papa on Sunday morning." and a moment of revelation for me because I gasped and thought, oh my goodness, I'm not sure that I want Neve to hear what I'm going to be talking about. Um, we have tried to let you parents know that um, this message is actually an R13 um, if perchance you haven't uh, heard that through the social channel or social media channels uh, you might like to take the smaller children and perhaps give them something that Sarah or Claire has sent them to do just a heads up before we get into our message we are talking about Joseph's shall shall let moment and uh, if you know the scriptures you know where I'm going to be heading Um, I've started a series or we're halfway through a series that I've called watershed moments I define watershed moment as a turning point, the exact moment that changes the direction of a life, an activity, or a situation. It's a dividing point from which things will never be the same. The Greeks had a word to describe our phrase, a watershed moment. It was the word kairos. And a kairos is a moment that's filled with eternal significance. It's a moment that's pregnant with possibilities for both God, uh, for both good and ill. When we become aware of the fact that we are actually in the midst of or facing a Kairos moment, our natural response is often one of um, uncertainty, of ambivalence, of incredible indecisiveness. We realise we have to respond to this moment and we become aware that the implications uh, are possibly huge. In both of the first two messages, I mentioned that Hebrews, the Hebrew language, doesn't actually have a word for ambivalence. But uh, interestingly enough, it has a tune for ambivalence. In the ancient, and actually in modern synagogues as well, uh, in ancient synagogues, the scriptures were sung or, or or chanted rather than being read, as they would be in our modern day churches. The rabbi or the cantor, the song leader, would sing the appointed. Passage. And in the Hebrew language there's a small accent that goes above a word. It's a rare note and it's called the shal shalet. It's a zigzag like accent that's placed above a word that indicates to the rabbi or the cantor how it should be sung. And on the graphics at the moment, if you look at that Hebrew word, the second word from the left has that small zigzag sh- shall shalet. And when that occurs, it indicates to the rabbi or the cantor how it should be sung. And it goes something like Da 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 When it occurs, it indicates a person who is in a psychological state of ambivalence or uncertainty. That's why I said, though we don't have a word for ambivalence, we do have a tune for it. When the Shal Shalet occurs, we see a person being torn by an inner conflict. They are grappling with a significant temptation, a deep inner aspiration, and they aren't sure how to proceed. The Shal Shalet, as I said, is rare. It occurs only four times in the first five books of the Bible, our Old Testament scripture, that is called the Torah. It's found in Genesis 19, and the person involved there is Lot. It's found in Genesis 24, and the person there is Eliezer. Joseph in Genesis 39 and Moses in Leviticus 8 are also places where the shall shall it occurred. In message one, we considered Lot. And you'll remember the story, the angels were trying to get him and his family out of the city of Sodom before the judgment of God fell on the city. And verse 16 says, he hesitated. And above the word in Hebrew hesitated is the shall shallet. And what we have here is Lot's pursuit of wealth as a means of establishing his security and his identity created an existential crisis for him when he was told that God's judgment was about to fall on the city, a city that he had tried so hard to assimilate into and to be part of. In the second message, we considered Eliezer, found in Genesis chapter 24. Now, his ambivalent moment centered around deep aspirations, perhaps an ambition that he cherishly held. We talked about the possibility that he had hoped to inherit Abraham's position and power. That possibility moved away when when Abraham and Sarah had a son, Isaac. But when Isaac became of a marriageable age, Abraham tenaciously refused to marry him off to a local Canaanite girl and instead sent Eliezer on a mission back to his hometown to secure a bride for his son. Eliezer is praying about this particular woman and which woman he should choose and the shall Shalet occurs over his prayer. It says then he said shall it. Shall, and the indication is that that Eliezer was ambivalent about the mission's success. Primarily because he thought that if Isaac couldn't find a bride, he might ultimately marry Eliezer's daughter, his own daughter, and that and thereby he would in fact inherit Abraham's position. I uh, I, I think Eliezer is different from Lot. I think in Lot's instance, um the Shaushalet is somewhat negative. In Eliezer's situation, I think it's somewhat positive. It's positive in the sense that Eliezer was firstly aware he's self-aware he identifies the deeply held ambitions and aspirations that he has that he has and and so many people actually don't secondly eliezer had enough spiritual nous to take that ambition to the lord in prayer and he submitted it to the lord in a sincerely prayed not my will but your be your will be done type prayer uh, I've mentioned in both messages that the Shal-Shalet moments that occur in the Torah seem to center around the issues of money, sex and power. I suggested that for Lot it was money, for Eliezer it was power. Now I understand these uh, concepts actually in the most, uh, most cases are somewhat inseparable, but I am separating them for the purpose of, of analysis. Today we are going to look at Joseph's shall shall moment and it centers on sex. I was joking with the leadership team before and said, I guarantee for 30 minutes on Sunday I will remove every thought of COVID-19 from people's minds and they said, how you plan to do that? And I said, talk about sex. The passage we're going to look at is Genesis 39 verses 1 through 19. I'm reading from the Message Bible. After Joseph had been taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelites, Potiphar, an Egyptian, one of Pharaoh's officials and the manager of his household, bought him from them. As it turned out, God was with Joseph and things went very well with him. He ended up living in the home of his Egyptian master. His master recognized that God was with him, saw that God was working for good in everything he did. He became very fond of Joseph and made him his personal aid. He put him in charge of all his personal affairs, turning everything over to him. From that moment on, God blessed the home of the Egyptian, all because of Joseph. The blessing of God spread over everything he owned at home and in the fields, and all Potiphar had to concern himself with was eating three meals a day. Joseph was a strikingly handsome man. As time went on, his master's wife became infatuated with Joseph, and one day she said, sleep with me. He wouldn't do it. The King James says he refused. And above the Hebrew word that we translate by the English refused is our shall shalet. He said to his master's wife, look with me here. My master doesn't give a second thought to anything that goes on here. He's put me in charge of everything he owns. He treats me as an equal. The only thing he hasn't turned over to me is you. You're his wife after all. How could I violate his trust and sin against God? She persisted, she pestered him day after day, uh, day after day after day, And uh, but he stood his ground. He refused to go to bed with her. On one of these days, he came to the house to do his work, and none of the household servants happened to be there. She grabbed him by the cloak, saying, Sleep with me. He left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she realized that he had left his coat in her hand and run outside, she called to her house servants. Look, this Hebrew shows up, and before you know it, he's trying to seduce us. He tried to make love to me, but I yelled as loud as I could. With all my yelling and screaming, he left his coat beside me here and ran outside. She kept his coat right there until his, master came ho- until his master came home. She told him the same story. She said, the Hebrew slave, the one you brought to us, came after me and tried to use me for his plaything. When I yelled and screamed, he left his coat with me and ran outside. When his master heard his wife's story telling him, these are the things your slave did to me, he was furious. Joseph's master took him and threw him into the jail where the king's prisoners were locked up. I'm sure most of you are aware of the backstory to Joseph's shall moment. Joseph, the tender-hearted dreamer, was the beloved and favoured son of his father, Jacob. His father Jacob had given Joseph the very famous coat of many colours, the Andrew Lloyd Webber Technicolor Dream Coat. You, know, you know, most of us tend to imagine, if we think about that coat, uh, uh, we pic- we picture it as a kind of uh, patchwork quilt-like garment. And for the life of us, most of us cannot imagine why the brothers would be envious. It's like, ah, oh, no, you keep it, Joseph. Mm, looks good on you. However, the idea of it being a patchwork quilt actually isn't an accurate one. It was much more likely to have been a long white robe with beautifully embroidered sleeves. It was this kind of robe that was worn by the one in the family that was destined to bear rule, the one who was the heir apparent. Actually, the Revised Standard Version translates verse 3 of Genesis 37 as, It was a long robe with sleeves. It was the designation of Joseph being the heir apparent that actually made his brothers so angry and so envious of him. As a result of that designation, Joseph was hated. His brothers ultimately took him, tossed him into a pit and for 20 pieces of silver later pulled him out and sold him to some passing Ishmaelites who took him down to Egypt where he was sold as a slave. There he was purchased by Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. In the midst of this trauma and isolation, the Bible tells us that the Lord was with Joseph and his favor rested on him. And as a result, everything that Joseph did prospered. Potiphar, seeing that favor, promoted Joseph until, as we found, he was in charge of the whole household. Genesis 39, verse 6, tells us that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. One translation says he was muscular and good looking. It's not wrong to be muscular and good looking, it's not fair, but it's not wrong. If you are muscular and good looking, you just have to know the rest of us hate you. And if we get the chance, like Joseph's brothers, we will sell you to a passing bunch of Ishmaelites for 30 pieces of silver. As a result of his form and appearance, uh, Potiphar's wife became infatuated with Joseph and she comes to him with a seductive invitation. The King James says, lie with me. Now, I'm sure that I don't have to tell you that the reference to the word lie there isn't about telling fibs. She wasn't saying, let's tell fibs together, Joseph. The message makes it clear, sleep with me. And this is a crisis moment for Joseph. This is his watershed moment. And it says, he refused, shall, shall it? Now, let's be clear on one point. Joseph did not turn this woman down because he didn't fancy her. You know, like, I'm um, as in, oh, well, I, I actually prefer blondes, or you're really not my type, or I don't find you attractive in that way, couldn't we just be friends? You have to know that Joseph's temptress would have been the epitome of Egyptian sensuality. This was a world and a time when women were often little more than chattels, and it was the rich and the prominent men that got first dibs. Pharaoh was one of Potiphar's officers, a prominent man and a wealthy man, and you have to know that Mrs. Potiphar would have been called what we used to call a beautiful woman. She she was a bombshell. She was a ten. She was a woman that would have been on the cover of any woman's magazine and probably some men's one as well. The shal Shalet above Joseph's refusal, refusal indicates that his refusal didn't come easily and it didn't come quickly. This was a wrenching moment of conflict and temptation for him. I think Joseph's entire moral sense would have said aloud no to the idea of being sexually involved with her. He would have known that it amounted to a betrayal of all he stood for as a follower of Yahweh. It also would have been a a very cruel betrayal of the trust that Potiphar had placed in him. Wonderfully, Joseph was a young man who knew his limits, administratively, relationally, and morally. Joseph knew what he was in charge of and what he wasn't in charge of. And he knew that his virtually unlimited control of Potiphar's interests did not include his boss's wife. I want to suggest to you however that intellectual awareness, the intellectual awareness that his answer to this seductive advance should clearly be no, didn't exhaust all the components in this temptation. Intellectual awareness simply isn't enough to keep a person, it never does. There are physical, emotional, psychological forces operating in such a scenario that have the potential to absolutely overwhelm any intellectual hesitations. Joseph is a red blooded, handsome young man at the peak of his powers, probably somewhere in his very late teens or early 20s. He's far away from country, from culture, from kin. Those three things, country, culture, and kin, are usually the primary source of our identity and conformity. He's now removed from, from them, and new possibilities and new vulnerabilities are opened up. And anybody who's left home to go to university or who's traveled abroad alone knows exactly what I'm talking about. Here in Egypt, no one knew him. No one could see him. Perhaps he considered the thought that he should just simply forget country, kith and culture and just blend into Egyptian culture with its laissez-faire attitude towards sexuality. Perhaps he felt given all of the hostility, the rejection and the suffering that he endured, he deserved or at least needed some comfort. The lyrics of Paul Simon's song in The Boxer come readily to mind, describing the plight of a young man who's away from home. And Paul Simon so eloquently writes, Asking only a workman's wages, I come looking for a job, but I get no offers. Just to come on from the whores on 7th Avenue. I do declare there were times when I was so lonesome, I took some comfort there. Joseph's in that sort of situation, except that the come on doesn't come from some street worker, but from an incredibly beautiful, sexually seductive, high-class woman. Being propositioned by such a woman might have been as comforting and flattering as it was sensual and seductive. But Joseph refused. What a mighty antithesis that response is to the spirit of the age. Joseph refused to be the bedfellow of the spirit of the age that shouted to him, you deserve it, you need it, do it, have it, live it, luxuriate, engage, don't refuse. Why refuse? You know, this isn't some grubby me too moment. There there, there would have been two consenting adults. As long as no one's hurt, why would you refuse? And what I'd like to do today is take the remainder of our time together and consider that question as it relates to us in our time. You know, people, including those who would profess to be followers of Jesus, often question the traditional position of the Bible on sexual morality. And in case you're listening and you don't know what the traditional biblical stance is on sexual morality, the Bible states really clearly that sexuality belongs within a lifelong covenant, a covenant commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. So I've had people over the years come to me and say, what's wrong with sex outside of that context, you know, outside of marriage? Why shouldn't people cohabit? Surely living together in a trial relationship makes so much sense. I've had people say, you know, Don, the traditional view of sex being limited to marriage is so unrealistic and antiquated that, frankly, it's quite embarrassing to tell my friends that I'm a Christian. So the question, why refuse? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I do tell you what I'm about to say will seem to some of you so countercultural that I risk sounding like an ancient dinosaur stuck in a tar pit. Uh, a great American Cadillac gas guzzler with pink uh, you know, pink fl- fins sticking out the back in a small electric car world. But I, I'm not apologetic. I, I want to remind you that cultural relevance and society's approval has never been and must never be the measuring stick for those who purport to follow Jesus. So you ask, well, what's wrong with Joseph saying yes? What's wrong with sex outside marriage if you have consenting adults? Let me do what Jesus did so often when he was asked a question. He turned the question round and asked one back. You say to me, what's wrong with sex outside marriage? Let me ask you a question. What's wrong with anything? And you go, don' don' What do you mean? Well, I'm asking you. How do you determine whether anything is right or wrong? What's the source? of your moral code. You know, most people have never thought about that question and if they're pushed to answer it, they'll say something like, well, you know, I, I do what seems right to me, I want to do the right thing, I, I'm, I'm acting according to my feelings, So, so, and they always, of course, add the inane, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But the problem with that kind of response is your moral code is arbitrary and subjective. It amounts to everybody simply does that which is right in their own eyes. You know, the cry of the 21st century is be authentic. But Whose personal authenticity do we want to affirm, Mother Teresa's or Joseph Stalin's? Both did what they felt was right and what was authentically them. Both were being true to themselves. How do we judge? And on the basis of what? On on what basis do we condemn one and applaud another? Now I won't keep you in suspense regarding that answer. The answer is you haven't got a clue. If you are in that subjective place of, I do what I think feels right, then you haven't got a clue. Well, you say, well, Don, well, well, it's common sense and society determines what's right. But I'm sorry, that simply pushes the problem back one step. Whose society? Are we talking about the liberal West, Nazi Germany, Pol Pot's Cambodia? What society? Well, so come on, Don, it's just common sense. Well, in my experience, common sense is neither common, nor is it always sense. If you don't believe in an ultimate objective source of morality, an ultimate moral lawgiver, then you are adrift in the moral morass and chaos of our age. I'm presuming that most of you who are listening and watching today are Christians. As Jesus followers, we have an objective moral standard. The scriptures are very clear in terms of how God wants us to function as creatures made in his image. And that includes how we function as sexual beings. Now, I could take time and show you the scriptures on this subject, but for the sake of our time, I'm going to assume that you are aware of the fact that the Bible limits sexual expression to the lifelong covenantal commitment of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. So why refuse Joseph? Well, because the God that you purport to follow says it's a simple issue of of discipleship. Don't do that. I I think, having said that, there will be some of you who say, well, yeah, that sounds like blind obedience to me, Don. I want to understand why God might say no to sex outside marriage. Well, I think there are actually profound spiritual reasons for obedience. When we come to describing sex, the Bible describes it as a union. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That's not just a throwaway comment, some kind of metaphorical comment referring to the physical closeness of sexual union between a man and a woman. The sexual union is much more than simply physical closeness. The Bible describes it as a union of both body, spirit, and soul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says in the Message Translation, there is much more to sex than skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. As it is written in Scripture, the two shall become one. Now, in our culture, we have reduced sex to simply its physical dimension. It's, it's no more equivalent than, to, it's, it's like a casual workout at the gymnasium. And the voices speaking to our young people encourage them to experiment, to explore their sexuality, claiming that it'll lead them to future well-being and peace of mind. Listen, forget biblical admonitions for a moment. Scientific facts refute such so-called wisdom. Scientists are now finding themselves siding with biblical revelation and discovering that sex is far more than simply momentary physical pleasure, an act that has few or no ongoing implications. Studies in the field of neuroscience are concluding that sexual encounters actually produce powerful, even lifelong changes in our brain that have the power to direct and influence our future to a surprising degree. You know, I'm sure we've all heard and possibly joked about the hormone called testosterone. Testosterone, sorry. There are lots of jokes and snide remarks made about the level of testosterone in the male species. It is found also in women as well. But though we're f- familiar with testosterone, we are not so familiar with another hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is called the bonding hormone. It's too found in males and females, but it's stronger in the female species. And it's released, especially in the female, in the act of sexual union. And it, produce a bond, it produces a bonding between the parties. It's, de- it's been described as an adhesive-like substance that produces a powerful bond that cannot be undone without significant emotional pain. In the male, there's a chemical called vasopressin. It's often described as the monogamy molecule. It's remarkably similar in its function to oxytocin, and it it fulfils a bonding function. It's caused some neuroscientists to conclude that we are actually, as a species, designed for monogamy. Research has shown that the pattern of changing sexual partners damages our ability to bond in a committed relationship. It compromises our ability to enter into and sustain healthy, mature, long-lasting relationship. It's a bit like sticky tape that is used more than it should be used, more than once. It loses its ability after it's been used and removed several times. So why refuse Joseph? It's simply better for you, spiritually and relationally. Why refuse Joseph? Because it's better for your long-term psychological happiness. Casual, promiscuous sex has long-term psychological implications and consequences. Miriam Grossman, in her hard-hitting book, Unprotected, bluntly states, casual sex is hazardous for a woman's mental health, and research backs up her claim. One in-depth study of 6,500 teenagers showed that sexually active girls were three times more likely to be depressed and three times more likely to attempt suicide than their sexually inactive counterparts. Now I can, I can perhaps hear somebody responding me, to me by saying, well, okay, Don, I, I guess we can um, acknowledge that promiscuous casual sex isn't a great idea as far as mental health goes. But what about people who are in a committed relationship with someone, not married, but they are committed to each other? Surely it's better to live together and see if the relationship is going to be a workable one. It sounds like wisdom, but let me ask you a question. How do you temporarily practice permanence? The whole analogy of kind of, of a test drive sounds great as long as you picture yourself as the driver and the other person as the vehicle. It isn't so much fun when you turn that metaphor around. The unspoken message of the metaphor goes something like, I'm going to drive you around the block a few times while withholding judgment and commitment from you until I've satisfied myself regarding your suitability. Please don't get upset about this trial run. Just try and behave normally. You pretend to be married and I'll pretend to be shopping. Um, I suspect there wouldn't be too many takers. Let me give you a few brief scientific sociological facts about cohabitation cohabitors are more likely to suffer depression than their married counterparts they perceive their relationship as less stable than their married counterparts they report poorer relationship quality than their married counterparts they are more likely to have secondary partners than their married counterparts and if you don't get my drift they cheat more often they report higher levels of violence, both verbal and physical. Children living with cohabiting parents are 20 times more likely to be the victims of child abuse. You know, the average length of marriages that do end up in divorce is between 11 and 12 years. The average length of marriage as a whole is around 30 years. The average length for a cohabiting couple is five, five years. Those who have lived together before they get married are statistically more likely to be divorced than couples who have not live, lived together prior to marriage. This isn't, this isn't Bible-thumping teaching. This is scientific sociological research. So why refuse, Joseph? Well, it's better for you spiritually, relationally, psychologically. Why refuse, Joseph? It's better for you biologically. There's no such thing as safe sex outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. Safe sex is a myth. And even the organisation that have pushed the message safe sex have had to change it to safer sex. You might be thinking, what? I mean, I was told that condoms made casual sex okay and safe. Well, we all know condoms provide limited protection against sexually transmitted diseases and and, and admittedly that's better than no protection but the reality is you're playing Russian roulette with a gun that has more than one of its chambers loaded. Condoms provide absolutely no protection for a woman against human papillomavirus, HPV, which is the number one cause of cervical cancer. Though condoms reduce the chance of catching herpes by 40%, there's a 60% figure there that would bother me. It reduces chlamydia by 26%. However, chlamydia, which has just gone off the scale in terms of its um, spread in in the Western world, reduces the fertility of a woman by 25%. And again, we know that infertility is reaching pandemic proportions in the West. It's increased over 500% in the last six years. And chlamydia is one of the key features. Syphilis has increased more than 560% in the last five years in New Zealand and gonorrhea rates are up by 50% in New Zealand over the last two years. In 1950 we knew about five sexually transmitted diseases, today there are 50 and counting and 30% of those are incurable. You talk to young people about casual sex and the great no-no is don't get pregnant, Listen, they are four times more likely to contract a sexually transmitted disease than they are to fall pregnant. Why refuse, Joseph? Well, it's better for you spiritually, relationally, psychologically, biologically. Perhaps that might give you an insight into why God says that sex belongs within a particular context. He isn't some kind of cosmic killjoy. He cares for you and wants the very best for you. And just as a fire can be wonderful and warming when it's in the fireplace, a fire taken out of that context can burn your house down. Now I'm sure there'll be some who are listening to me today who are a little ticked with my religious prudishness. But before you sound off, outside of the Genesis text that we started with, I used a couple of brief scriptures. The rest has simply been scientific and sociological research. And it seems that they concur with what the Bible says, which should make us stop and think. Now, I know when I talk like this that there's always somebody who's thinking, I wish somebody had told me about this a few years back. It's too late for me. I've already failed. This message isn't designed to bring more condemnation to people who have failed. We need to know God is a a God who forgives. God is a redeemer. And what a redeemer does is he takes broken things and he fixes them. God can redeem. He can fix the brokenness. He can forgive the failure. He's ready and willing to do so when we come to him in a repentant stance but I want to tell you if you're listening and you haven't yet failed there's something God would rather do than redeem you in the words of Jude 24 he would rather keep you from falling now I'm I'm not suggesting that keeping yourself in sexual purity in an age like ours which is just flooded with sexual images like a tsunami it's it's not going to be easy it it never is it wasn't for Joseph when she came, when Mrs Potiphar came with her temptations, though it says he refused, above it was the shall shall let. He struggled. There was internal tension, there was psychological drama, there was existential crisis in Joseph as he weighed his alternatives. He finally said, I cannot do this. I cannot sin against God. I cannot betray the trust of my master. And relationally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, he made a good decision. God cares for you. The reason he says, save this for this context is that he knows how it was designed and he wants to see it flourish in that context in the best possible way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that it is so up-to-date, so relevant. It speaks to us where we live. And I pray today, Father, that this word would be both a word that would confront, that would bring some sense of healing to some who have failed, knowing that they can be forgiven, knowing that they can be restored and redeemed. It would be a word that makes us so aware that you love us you care for us you designed us in a particular way and when you say don't do something it's not because you're just simply trying to frustrate us you are asking that we follow your directions to live in a way that will bring great flourishing we thank you for the power of your word to change our lives and blessed Holy Spirit we ask you where we face temptation would you come with great strength so that like Joseph we can be those who stand as a great antithesis to the spirit of this age and refuse his office we want to be a people who rightly represent you in the world help us to be that people because we ask it in Jesus name and for his sake, Amen Thanks for listening we hope it was an encouragement to you Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.